You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. We are continue a series that we have been doing at the beginning of this year called Why Do Christians? Why Do Christians Worship? Why Do Christians Give? That was last week. So a lot of you are feeling relieved. We talked about giving last week, if this is your first night at Northside. Uh, why do Christians eat from... Uh, eat bits of bread, drink from cups? Why do Christians make friends with people that look nothing like their social circles? Why do Christians forgive? Why do Christians welcome strangers into their homes and their church like this? Uh, So we've been asking that question and the reason is, uh, a couple of reasons. The first one is you might be checking out the whole Christianity thing and if you are tonight, we're so glad you're here. That's why we exist as a church. We're glad that you're able to uh, come check out what this Christianity stuff is about. So it's gonna help you with some of the questions that you might have. Uh, But I've also been saying, and I have stood corrected, by the way, uh, it's not just soccer players that do stupid moves at training. Uh, Rugby players also do stupid moves with their legs. And uh, and the reason is, the principle behind it is, uh, that, that when they're undertaking what looks stupid from the outside, what they're really doing is they're undertaking certain practices that have been designed for them so they could be the best possible player they could be. And so the principle here is that what we've been looking at for the last or will be looking at over this six-week period is some of the fundamental practices of the Christian life that if you look in on it from the outside, look stupid half the time. Why do Christians give big chunks of their money away? That's crazy, says the financial planners. So that's where we're at. And tonight we look at uh, why do Christians take communion? Why do they eat bread, drink from cups? Now, I've been in a bit of... Uh, a nursery rhyme reconnaissance era now because of my stage of life, uh, rediscovering some of these little gems. And one of the deals of me discovering these gems of nursery rhymes is that Krista, my wife, said to me, uh, you you cannot give Zach any of your classic, this is the gospel according to talks. (laughs) Just read him the nursery rhyme. And I said, hun, that's totally fine. That's what I got the church for. So... (laughs) Tonight, I want to give you the gospel according to Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> because Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men, they couldn't put Humpty together again. Now, is it me or is that not, is that not the first half of the gospel? You see, to, to be a Christian, to be a Christian is to be daring enough to believe that at some point, both in humanity and in your own life, you've had a great fall. And I don't mean from a physical wall. Uh, What I mean is that in all of us, there's a brokenness in all of us. There's fragmented thought, there's fragmented emotions, there's fragmented relationships, there's fragmented desires. Now, forget all the horses and and all the men, every great religion in the world is asking this one question. Is there, is there, could there be a king that can put people back together again? Is there a king that can put the human race in light of all the violence and the racial divides back together again? And so as we look at this passage tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 to 28, you know, there's a word that's used here five times. It means to, to unite, to connect, to defrag for any of the IT gurus out there tonight to, to, to defrag. The, the Greek word is synecomai, 
That's what the Greeks call it. Uh, We call it communion. And communion is about putting things back together. That's what we're going to see as we read through from the Apostle Paul as he talks to his beloved but somewhat messed up Corinthian church. You'll see it in his tone. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry. Another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A person ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Why do Christians take communion? Why do we take it every week here at Northside? Uh, We're a Churches of Christ church. And there's basically one thing that seems to define a Church of Christ church, and that is communion every week. We do communion each and every week, particularly if you uh, have joined us in recent weeks or months, you're not from that background. And part of the reason was, is that the founders of our movement, the Stone Campbell movement in its early days, wanted to come back to the simplicity of Christianity And so they went and said, what was church all about? And they get to this verse in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so what our founders of our denomination said, church was simply teaching, community, communion and prayer. That was it. Now, why do we look at this topic each and every week? Why do we look at this tonight? Uh, specifically from a sermon point of view. Uh, It's like this. My nan uh, lived by a giant main road heading down to Seaforth. She was in a housing commission house, so uh, double glazing was not one of the things that you got back then in the day in a housing commission place. And so any time that a big truck would come down this road, you dead set felt like it was coming through the laundry room window. (laughs) Like it would, it would come in this, the, the drake brakes would be on and be like this and I would jump out of my seat and I'm like, what the heck was that? And, and Nan would still be watching LA Law and, and she wouldn't even flinch uh, because she had learned to get used to the noise. And so when we hear words like, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. You know, a statement like that is like a, it's, it's like a semi-trailer three feet from your lounge room door. Uh, the question is, do you, do, you, do you hear it? Do you react to this statement, particularly if you've been doing church for a while? And so let's revisit it. How does communion connect 
things? How does communion put things back together again? Here's the first way. Communion connects his death to your life. Uh, Communion connects it because immediately it connects you to an event that's in reality. Uh, It connects you back to that night uh, when Jesus would be betrayed. And we we anchor to past realities all the time. Even non-Christians anchor to realities all the time. You know what we call them? Memorials. We, we come back to memorials. We do things. April 25th, for example, if you're Australian or you're New Zealand, which pretty much makes up our church here tonight, that is, April 25th, it's the most famous memorial in our history. And, and so look, whenever we observe the Lord's Supper, communion, uh, we're not just talking about the present, but we're going back to a real moment in the past. Now, what was that moment? It was called the Passover And the Passover was a Jewish festival. It was this meal that would happen uh, and and all the families would gather together and one of the little kids would ask either the father or the grandfather, uh, Grandpa, what's different about tonight? Why is this night special of all nights? And then the grandfather would tell the story of the Passover and here's what happened. the, The father or the grandfather would recall the great story in Israel's history, that the Israelites were in bondage and that Pharaoh wasn't listening to God's stuttering servant, Moses, and he said, let my people people go. And, and Pharaoh was not listening to him and, and he didn't let him go. And so God decides to bring down his judgment and, and his justice upon the nation of, of Egypt. But here's the problem. All the Israelites being slaves there were living among the Egyptians And so here's what God says to do. He says, In every home, the Israelite families must come together and they must eat a meal. They must slay a lamb, eat the lamb, and put the blood on the doorposts of their homes. And so as a result, because they took shelter under the blood of the lamb, we've heard that phrase before, haven't we, in church? Because they took shelter under the blood of the lamb, because the lamb died instead of everyone inside the home, the people of Israel were saved. And so therefore, Moses says in Exodus 12, uh, therefore there must be a perpetual memorial that must never be changed, that once a year this meal we will remember that incredible, that wonderful, that great liberation. Freedom, a memorial to freedom. And so the Passover, remembering the past, brings the power of death into your life. And we're thinking, how the heck does, how the heck does that work? A little lamb, you know, roast lamb, some herbs sitting on the table. Um, how, how does a little fluffy lamby bring power into your life? Where do you get that from? <laughs> they shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. What just happened? What are, we, what are we feeling? Is, is, there, is there gratitude? Is there thankfulness? Is there joy in your freedom? Particularly if you get the Anzac story. What's happening to you? You bring the power of someone else's death into your present. And the Passover meal, we've got to understand, to the Jews was as much part of their psyche as the Anzac legend is to Australian and New Zealand stories. To to them, Anzac Day is effectively, it's a story where uh, it is so ingrained into their psyche. It is so ingrained into our psyche. It's so ingrained that it moves them. It's so ingrained that it moves us. 
And why? It's because, it, look, Anzac Day, it's not any story. Their salvation story. Anzac Day is effectively a Passover story. It's a story where someone else has copped a bullet for you. It's, it's a story where someone else's death is the cost of your freedom tonight. Now, uh, that's what the Jewish Passover was. And, and Passover in that way was a substitutionary love story. And you're thinking, what the heck is substitutionary love story? <laughs> what I mean by substitutionary love story is, oh, here's the question. All of the great commentators around this particular passage, and when you look at the passages of the Lord's Supper, they, they make this note. They say it's quite deliberate by the gospel writers. Big question, why was there no lamb on the table? If you go back and read through this, there's no, there's no herb, there's no mint, there's no mint sauce. There's the, the, the core thing of the Passover, there's no lamb on the table. Why is there no lamb on the table? And they all say it's because there was no lamb on the table because the lamb was sitting at the table. That Jesus is saying, guys, when we come to this story, I will be the main course. He's saying, I will take the ultimate bullet for you guys. My death will be your freedom. And you see why it's a substitutionary love story is that there's no power in love unless it costs someone something. You know, if you've ever been in love, whether it be a parent or a partner or whatever it might be, you know that there's not real love unless it costs somebody something. You know that there's never real love unless it's messy and people are, are, are mucked up and messed up and, and you love them anyway. And so this is what we begin to see in the message of Jesus, that real love chooses to enter into the mess. And see, that's why it's important because people often say to me as a pastor, well, you know what? I believe God is, he's not a God of judgment. He's a God that loves everyone. And my, I guess my question back to you with that is, well, what did it cost your God to love you? And, and so we, hear, we see Jesus going in and saying, guys, I'm, I'm going to be the lamb. Here is my blood. Here is my body. I'll take a bullet for you. And when Christians come back to communion and remember that, it brings forward the joy and it brings forward the gratitude for our freedom. So it, it connects his death to your life. Here's the other thing that communion does. It connects your soul to God. And when I say your soul, I mean your identity, your personality, uh, your everything about you. It connects it to God. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took the bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So one thing is really clear from this passage here and what Jesus is saying. It's really clear what Jesus is saying is that God, this transcendent grandfather picture in the sky is becoming accessible. He's becoming real. He's becoming tangible. It's flesh and blood. You can, you can grab this. Now, the, a quick side note. Is it literal or is it figurative? Is it literal or is it symbolic? Because that's where the Protestants and the Catholics divide a little bit. You see, the Catholics believe when you take communion that uh, the emblems become the literal physical body of Jesus Christ. Whereas the Protestants on the other side, when they take communion, they just say, oh, this is a symbol. Now, they got their advantages either way because the, for the Catholics, uh, it's a bit tricky because there are times in John chapter 6, for example, when Jesus talks about eating his body and drinking his flesh and he must have been talking symbolically. Uh, but it's also tough for the Protestants because if it's just a symbol, then there's no power. 
Yeah, there's no reverence. There's no beauty about it. And so that's just a side note for those that are quite technical. But the point is this. <laughs> the Lord's Supper is not just about a communion. It's not just about an experience. It's about a real and a deep connection with me, says Jesus. That's what the point of it all is. Now, why would you need to do that? Uh, you need to do it because of Hakuna Matata. That's why. Simba, young Simba runs away from the Pride Lands and while he's away, he goes and he moves into an oasis with Timon and Pumbaa and he lives in a bliss of Hakuna Matata. No worries, it's a wonderful phrase. And he spends part of his childhood in his adolescent life running crazy with these crazy boys and he's totally oblivious not only to his true identity back as the one true king of the pride lands, but of their desperate and desolate state. And it's only until uh, that his young friend Nala comes back in, it's only until, more importantly, that the spirit and the ghost of his father, Mufasa, appears and interjects in his life. And out by a pond, he looks into the sky and Simba hears the voice of his father. Simba. You have forgotten who you are because you have forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. You must take your place back in the circle of life. Um, to understand what Jesus is promising in the communion, we have to come back to that word remember. Uh, remember, says Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, he doesn't say eat, he doesn't say drink. He says eat, drink and remember. Remember me in all of this. Now, by the way, the English word for remember is a bit tricky because we think, when we think of remember, we think of recalling something like a memory test. But remember is one of those words that actually is what it sounds like, to remember. Can, you know, my arm is a member of my body, right? It sounds a bit gory, but to, to remember is to take my arm if it had been lopped off and to stitch it, to sew it, to fuse it, to connect it back into the place where it was meant to be. And so what it means is it take, to take something that's actually not part of you at the moment and to make it part of your life again, to graft it back into your life. And here's the question, why do we need to graft? Because, because you and I, we live in a Hakuna Matata world. Well, look inside yourself, says the true father. You, you, you are more than what you've become tonight. And he says to each and every one of us, you have forgotten who you are because you forget who I am. <coughs> and so the anxiety, the guilt, the fear, the pride, the selfishness, all of these sorts of things within us, they're just the parts of us that are, are what, are not supposed to be happening. You are more than that, says the ultimate father. And you need to remember, remember who I am. You need to remember my story of the Passover. You need to reattach me and you need to reattach yourself back into me. Communion connects your soul to God. Here's the third thing that communion does. Communion connects the individual to community. Now, here's the question. Why preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when there are lots of other more special communion passages, a lot nicer communion passages. And the reason why 1 Corinthians 11 is really good is 
because the Corinthian church was such a, such a heck of a mess. Uh, it's great. They were messy. They were mucked up. It's a great case study. Uh, and because at the Corinthian church, people were drinking the wine. They were getting drunk from the wine. There were people who were rich enough to have lots of food, so they were already drunk by the time they got to church. Uh, there were people who didn't have any money, so they didn't even get any food at the end of the communion. Uh, and it was just one messed up, mucked up thing of all different races and nationality and social classes. And we're going to get to that in a sec. But notice this thing. Passover was a family meal, right? It was the sort of meal where all of the Jewish families would get together for this one special meal. I guess it's like a, it was the Jewish version of Thanksgiving. I mean, have you ever seen an American airport on Thanksgiving? They are crazy over there. People just about kill each other through the security gates because all the families have got to get back together and they've got to do this one meal together. And Passover was very much like that. Now, here's the point. Here's the picture. Here's the question. Why is Jesus pulling together these disciples, these 12 guys, out of their family and saying, let's have a Passover meal together? Because they should be at home. There, there are 12 Mums and dads around the place back in those days that, that are missing their kids for Thanksgiving. I mean, there was a little card with glitter around the outside with Peter's name on it. And there was an empty chair and a mother cries by the kitchen door because of this Jesus guy. What is Jesus doing? Our message is real strong here. He's pulling the boys from their family because he's making a new family. And this is the significance of family. I don't know about you, but when you are raised with your brothers and sisters, for all their differences, they're still your brother and your sister, right? As much as you don't like them, you still love them. And when you're raised with them and you go through everything with them and when you're raised together, you've got common experiences and there's a bond there, there's a closeness there. And so Jesus is saying, when you believe in my message... It transforms you so much. There is such a bond there that everyone you will do life with in the church now becomes your brother and your sister. Your family now. Welcome to the fam. <laughs> He's saying there's a basis for unity in the church that should be as strong as if you've been raised together. And you know what that means? It doesn't matter your class. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your sexuality. It doesn't matter uh, what uh, your social status is. It, it, none of that matters. Because this bond, this family bond is stronger than anything else. And that's why one writer says about this and what Jesus was doing here, that what binds us together is not common education or common race or common income levels or common politics or common nationality or common accents or common jobs or anything of that sort. Christians come together because they've been loved by Jesus Christ. Christians come together, they were natural enemies who now love one another for the sake of the cross. And isn't that exactly what Paul always says? There's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no blue collar, there's no white collar, there's none of that sort of stuff in the church. And that means that the gospel is, it's the great leveler. Everyone's the same in this place. And now, now we start to get a sense of why Paul is throwing a tanty. He's, he's not happy, is he? Uh, so then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church that much? You humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. <laughs> he's, he's like a parent is saying, you are in so much trouble when I get home. <laughs> 
It, it levels people. And so here's what it means for us tonight. What it means is if we are brothers and sisters in this place, Paul is saying unequivocally, it is totally, totally incongruous. You are a walking contradiction. If you come to the communion table at the end of this service and you're harboring bitterness or grudges or unreconciliation with anyone else in this place, because he's saying the gospel is God doesn't hold a grudge. I mean, if God held a grudge, we'd be a toast. We'd, we'd just be gone. And God doesn't hold a grudge against you. So who are you to hold a grudge against anyone else? Now, here's the thing. I know all the time churches, we've got all sorts of different relationship dynamics going on. And so you're saying, well, can I take communion tonight if I'm unreconciled to someone? Yes, of course you can if you're a follower of Jesus. But the point being, it's the great trigger. It's the great trigger to reflect on what God has done for you and the way that communion connects the individual into community. And so finally, communion connects not only his death to your life, but it not only connects your soul to God, it not only connects the individual to community, but communion connects your story to the future. And how? Verse 26, of course. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, what does that mean? Uh, have, have you guys ever had a dynamic at Christmas or a birthday party where you were forced under a regime of oppression to sit at the kids' table? <laughs> Is there anyone here tonight that's still healing from that? Yeah? Are there any perpetrators of that tonight? We need to pray for you. But see, I hated sitting at the kids' table. I hated it. I spent half of my childhood wondering when it was I'm eventually going to get to the grown-ups table. But instead for me, we'd get to Christmas time. And if you're in a big family like mine, I was just at the threshold cutoff where like there were too many cousins to sit everyone at the table. And so I was the eldest of the kids' table. And so I had to sit there the whole time where everyone else has got gold-polished napkin rings and bonbons and all that. All I get is a rickety card table that Grandma had sitting in the garage each year <laughs> with plastic cups. Anyone had that? Hate the kids' table. <sighs> Quick question, what do you think heaven looks like? Because whenever you want to get a picture of that, uh, there's, there's some great verses in Revelation. Revelation chapter 19 says, Then the angel said to me, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then in, verse, in chapter 21, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling places are now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. You know what he's doing? He's putting Humpty back together. There is a king who can put you and that can put the human race back together again. You know what heaven is? You know what heaven is? Heaven's, heaven's been able to sit up at the grown-ups table. Heaven's been able to sit at the ultimate table. The ultimate table where, you know what? There isn't that rule like it was in my family that you only speak when you're spoken to. 
Heaven is the only table when the great father sits down. You don't have to wait for him to address you. You like a child, like his child, can run up to him and say, Daddy, what did this mean? Daddy, what did that mean? And Daddy, why, why all that pain and that suffering? And Daddy, 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 we can just go straight in and we can talk at the table. And here's how, here's how bits of cracker and grape juice in about three minutes' time has the ability to profoundly affect you. You know know what this is? This is just hors d'oeuvres. This is just cocktail snacks. This is just mini party pies and sausage rolls. It's just, it's, it's entree. It's the small dinner of the real dinner. It's a reminder for you this week that every piece of laughter and every piece of joy and every piece of goodness and every piece of wonder and every piece of glory that you possibly see is just a nibble. And what it means for you right now, it means no matter how messed up you think your life is, it means no no matter how tough things are, the good things, these are just hors d'oeuvres of your future bliss. Communion connects your story to the future. We all fall. We're all fragmented in some way. We're all broken in some way. Uh, that's, that's why the Bible is so realistic. The great news for you tonight is, is there is a king that can put you back together tonight. There is a king that can put the human race back together tonight. What it means is that if you don't know Jesus Christ, maybe it just means because, I don't know, you spent too long in the oasis. You, you need the spirit of the, ultimate, of, the, of the ultimate Mufasa to break into your life tonight. And he says to you tonight through his word and through his Holy Spirit, he says, you have forgotten who you are because you've forgotten me. He says to you, not, you tonight, if you are not a Christian, you are more whore than what you have become. You must take your place back in the circle of life. That is what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a kid of the king. That's what it means to take your rightful place in his ultimate kingdom. Have you done that yet? Are you living a Hakuna Matata life? You can meet Jesus tonight. But more importantly, if you're part of the family, come to the card table. Um, there is a place. There is a time. Where there'll be no more tears and there'll be no more mourning and there'll be no more pain. And you'll eat forever at the grown-ups table. Come, let's take of the hors d'oeuvres. Let's take communion.